I ended up with a broken nose and a busted lip. The first soldier fired for being gay was drummed out of the Continental Army in 1778 for sodomy. How was it repealed exactly? How would you say the organizing took place? To This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine, I'm Greg Gordon. A Turkish court finds no crime in pride marching, a Missouri student walkout targets anti-queer bullying, and a 10th anniversary salute to the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Those stories and more this week now that you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Sarah Montague. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending October 9th, 2021. Eighteen Turkish students and a faculty member were acquitted on October 8th of participating in an unlawful assembly and failing to disperse despite being warned. The 19 defendants from Middle East Technical University in Ankara had been arrested at a campus LGBTQ Pride March in May 2019. They each faced up to three years in prison. Police assaulted the marchers using pepper spray, plastic bullets and tear gas. Defense lawyer Oitre Didim Aydin told reporters that police video taken during the melee shows clearly that one policeman is shouting, We are against your existence. LGBTQ pride marches once drew hundreds of thousands of celebrants to Turkey's major cities, but they've had a spotty history since a failed coup attempt against despotic president Recep Erdogan in 2016. Local governments were given the power to ban pride marches in the name of public order and security. Ankara authorities outlined them in 2017, but lifted the ban in February 2019, four months before the student march. So the judge at Ankara's 39th Penal Court of First Instance concluded this week that peacefully participating in an LGBTQ pride march is simply not a crime. A June pride march in Istanbul proceeded despite an official ban. Police broke it up with violent assaults on the peaceful participants. The growing chasm between the European Union's pro-queer policies and Poland's stubborn official homophobia hit a critical point this week. Poland's Constitutional Tribunal ruled that national laws have precedence if they conflict with EU laws. The ruling was requested by Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki in March. It's the first time in history that a member state has questioned the EU's legal supremacy. The EU has been Polish LGBTQ people's primary protector. Queer activists warn that if the rift leads to a poll exit, vulnerable minorities could be in even more peril. To Polish queer activist Bart Staszajewski, the court victory gives members of the ruling far-right Law and Justice Party the opportunity to rev up their anti-queer rhetoric. It's worked well for them in the past, and elections are coming in two years. Staszewski tweeted that by playing the poll exit card, the party can only win. Someone else will clean up after them. Poland's first openly gay politician gave Pink News an assessment that was even more disturbing. 
Robert Biedren, believes that the court ruling would allow the government to reach out instead to Russia with palms up. Or as Biedren cynically told Pink News, it was fun, but it's over. We took some euros and now it's time for rubles. The European Commission immediately responded to the Polish court's ruling with a statement reaffirming that all rulings by the European Court of Justice are binding on all member states' authorities, including national courts. An influential Russian government official is calling for LGBTQ advocacy groups to be designated as extremists. Andrei Shiganov chairs a commission for the protection of children at Russia's federal media watchdog, the Roskomnadzor. The state-run TASS news agency and the Moscow Times quoted Zganov saying, LGBT ideology, radical feminism, and child-free movements should be recognized as an extremist ideology. He added a chilling implication that such a designation would untie the hands of our law enforcement officers. The comments came on the same day that Russia's Justice Ministry slapped a foreign agent label on the research and educational nonprofit Ivano Center for Gender Studies. Vladimir Putin's government has been using the foreign agent gambit to smear feminist and queer supportive NGOs with allocations that their funding comes from malevolent non-Russian sources. Organizations from the Jehovah's Witnesses to groups linked to jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny have been outlawed with the extremist designation. Meanwhile, Putin's buddy Ramzan Kadyrov was inaugurated on October 5th to lead Chechnya for another term. The despotic head of the semi-autonomous, mostly Muslim region of Russia won re-election with 99.97% of the vote. But who's counting? Despite overwhelming evidence, Kadyrov continues to deny the genocidal purge that's been going on in Chechnya since at least 2017. Queer concentration camps where anyone even perceived to be LGBTQ faces torture and death. The Russian government also claims to have thoroughly investigated the charges and found no evidence that such horrors exist. The lower house of the French parliament this week advanced a bill to ban conversion therapy. The vote in the National Assembly on October 5th was a staggering 115 to 0 with three abstentions. The French queer magazine Tattoo reports that the bill punishes conversion therapy practitioners with fines up to the equivalent of 35,000 U.S. dollars and two years in prison. If the victim is a minor, the perpetrator could be fined up to 52,000 U.S. dollars and spend an additional year behind bars. The Macron government backs the bill, but it still needs to pass in the much more conservative Senate before the current legislative session ends at the end of February 2022. Lawmakers in Canada, Finland, and New Zealand are also considering banning conversion therapy, and Malta already outlaws it. The bogus practice that purports to make queer people straight more often than not psychologically and spiritually damages its so-called patients. In other queer-related news from France, Health Minister Olivier Veron signed off on a measure this week that opens fertility services to single women and lesbians. Lawmakers had passed it in June. Those services were previously only available to heterosexual couples. Underneath a horrifically bad Texas law that virtually bans abortion in the state lays the tale of a good gay judge and an ugly homophobic legislator. The law bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy before most women are even aware that they're pregnant. 
Federal District Court Judge Robert Lee Pittman granted the U.S. Justice Department's request for the preliminary injunction that temporarily banned the law from taking effect. His ruling that the law was blatantly unconstitutional provided what legal experts are calling a meticulous analysis of the case. The out-gay jurist was appointed by President Barack Obama and has a master's degree in human rights from Oxford. However, Texas appealed Judge Pittman's decision, and late on the evening of October 8th, the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals overturned his injunction and restored the life-threatening law. That was not unexpected. The 5th Circuit is notoriously conservative and is currently loaded with Trump appointees. Republican Texas state lawmaker Jonathan Mitchell has been tagged as the architect of the anti-choice bill. He argued that women can control their reproductive lives without access to abortion by refraining from sexual intercourse. Mitchell has also written that Roe v. Wade and marriage equality are both judicial concoctions and there is no other source of law that can be invoked to salvage their existence. The decades-old U.S. Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision guaranteeing a woman's right to choose is at stake. The justices have already put Mississippi's 15-week abortion restriction on their docket for this year. Finally, Scotland has become the first nation on earth to require an LGBTQ-inclusive school curriculum. Implementation of the policy kicked off with the launch of an online teaching resource in late September. The plan was approved by the Scottish government in 2018. All state schools are required to teach the history of LGBTQ rights movements and to hold classroom discussions on equality issues. Notably, there are no parental opt-out provisions. The new website features e-learning courses with content created by parents, teachers, students, and queer rights groups. Jordan Daly is a co-founder of Time for Inclusive Education, a Scottish nonprofit dedicated to expanding queer classroom content across the country. He told the Daily Record, This work will empower young people and provide them with an opportunity I didn't have at school to feel valued, confident, and proud of who they are. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending October 9th, 2021. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to NewsWrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Michael LeBeau. Stay healthy. And I'm Sarah Montague. Stay safe. This Way Out is supported in part by contributions from our listeners. Some give a little each month, Some make a larger annual contribution. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. If Republicans were to win in 2012 the presidency, could Don't Ask, Don't Tell be reinstituted? I think that would be the least of our problems. Problem solved later in the program. But first...
claims to have a zero tolerance to bullying, yet this was definitely an indicator of bullying. We are Where's the apology? The latest pro-LGBTQ student walkout in the U.S. brought hundreds into the streets of Lee Summit, Missouri, a suburb of Kansas City. This time, it was to protest disciplinary actions taken against a bullied gay high school student and his two allies. Danny Lewis and his defenders were suspended after they were forced to physically fight off one of their campus tormentors. The October 4th student demonstration on their behalf received widespread local coverage, including TV stations WDAF, KMBC, and KSHB. One of Danny's friends, Malani Holbaugh. I was just standing up for my friend Danny, who constantly gets made fun of by the same people. Danny returned to on-campus learning for his senior year wearing makeup. He talked about going to student administration to stop the ongoing verbal abuse and harassment he and his allied friends were enduring. I have felt completely ignored and completely invalidated since the first day I went to SAD about this. There was at least a four or five solid times that I went to SAD crying for help. Malini described her confrontation with one of the bullies. My goal was to just get around him, but he noticed I was walking by him, so he turned into me as the same time I was walking by him. We both bumped shoulders, he then shoved, I shoved back, and then he punched me. I ended up with a broken nose and a busted lip. It's just crazy how much anger is around. More than 3,000 students have signed a Change.org petition demanding an end to bullying on campus. The school district says it's investigating the incident, but could not explain why the victims received the same five-day suspension as the bully. They don't seem to go in depth to the cause. Like, they just want to push it under the rug. They just want to keep it quiet. And I get that is how a lot of school systems are. But at the same time, you can't get things fixed if that's how it is. It shouldn't take an injury. What's it going to take a death before they say, oh, shoot, things are getting out of hand. Danny's mom, Missy Lewis. Our children should feel safe at school. This is his senior year. He has come so far on his journey, and I'm so proud of him, and he wants to be there for others. I have seen other people get bullied in our school, and a lot of people that do get bullied are scared to stick up for themselves, and that's what breaks my heart. And with the voice that I have, I want to stand up for those who don't stand up for themselves. In addition to bringing public attention to the situation, student walkouts hit school districts where it hurts. Their funding is dependent in part on the number of students actually in class, not demonstrating outside. Hi, this is Janice Ian, and you're listening to This Way Out. You ain't gonna get this nowhere else. The U.S. military signals its final retreat from Don't Ask, Don't Tell ten years ago this month. 
the policy that allowed only closeted gays and lesbians to serve, became law in 1993 as a so-called compromise after President Bill Clinton's failed effort to eliminate homosexuality as disqualifying. This way, as Lucia Chappelle reported on how the milestone was achieved and how far there still was to go. Red-faced, angry-eyed, discharged from a body of lies. Your questions, they couldn't be more out of line. Why don't they ask me about my greatest love so I could tell the greatest story of two wild-hearted lovers who were sick of holding hands in the dark. Well, this is who we are. Even though the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell went into effect on September 20th, the closing battles of the war to liberate LGBT service members are still unresolved. Although lesbian, gay, and bisexual people can now participate in the U.S. military openly, this week's dismissal of a lawsuit that had found the defunct policy unconstitutional means that that ruling cannot be used to help settle lingering legal questions. And a new Pentagon memo allowing military chaplains to conduct same-gender marriages is no substitute for equal rights and benefits for gay and lesbian couples. Dorian Marina interviewed David McKean of the Service Members Legal Defense Network for Free Speech Radio News on the day that Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal became official. It's an incredibly significant day for the thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of active duty uh, and serving gay and lesbian and bisexual service members, many of whom are serving overseas uh, and who, who no longer need to fear that a, a statement or somebody seeing them uh, and learning their sexual orientation will ultimately lead to their discharge under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. They can serve openly and honestly and with integrity uh, from this day forward. And I think it's an incredible day. It will help make the military stronger, uh, and it will take a, a, an enormous amount of fear out of the service of, of gay and lesbian service members. Some have also pointed out that while this ban uh, is lifted over uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual service members, uh, transgendered people are still barred from serving in the military. How do you see that moving forward? Despite the fact that repeal takes effect today, those who are serving or who would like to serve in the military who are transgender are medically disqualified uh, from doing so. Moving forward, you know, I think that it's going to take the military recognizing that service should be based on ability to do the job and that if you have somebody who is capable of doing the job, who's an effective member of the team uh, and who, who is a, a valuable service member, something like their, uh, their gender identity or expression should not be a, a medical barrier to, to completing that service. And we've seen the military move in that direction uh, with, with sexual orientation, with the recognition that somebody's sexual orientation is not a barrier to being an effective member of the military. And I think that it will take the military recognizing that the same is true for gender identity or expression. That was David McKean, legal director of the Service Members Legal Defense Network, in conversation with Dorian Marina. San Francisco State University political science professor Aaron Belkin offers a comprehensive analysis of the road to ending the military's ban on lesbian and gay service members in his book, How We Won, Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
With Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! the day the change went into effect, Belkin took it back to before the beginning. The first soldier uh, fired for being gay was uh, 233 years ago, um, drummed out of the Continental Army in 1778 for sodomy. It's taken more than two centuries to get to today, and uh, it is, it's a big win for the troops, but more importantly, a big win for the country. In October of 2010, Democracy Now! hosted a debate on whether the movement against Don't Ask, Don't Tell was helping to legitimize U.S. militarism at home and abroad. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is an anti-war queer activist and writer. She was debating Lieutenant Dan Choi, the discharged service member who is a leading voice opposing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Dan Choi talks about all of America being a victim of the policy of excluding openly gay soldiers in the military, but all of the world is a victim of the U.S. military. So if we have to look at one culprit for all of the problems that are going on in the entire world, that would have to be the U.S. military. And as a queer movement, what we need is a movement for gender, sexual, social, political, and cultural self-determination for queers in this country for everyone in this country and for everyone all over the world. We do not need to support the U.S. war machine, which is busy plundering indigenous resources and fighting at least three wars right now, you know, for corporate profiteers. We need to be fighting for universal access to basic needs, things like housing and health care and the right to stay in this country or leave if you want to. We need to be fighting for comprehensive sex education, for AIDS health care, for senior care, for for safe houses for queer youth to escape abusive families. And the problem with all this attention on the war machine, all this support for, you know, soldiers to serve openly in unjust wars, the problem is that the military is what's taking away the ability to fund everything in this country that would actually benefit, you know, the people who need the most. That was Matilda Bernstein's sycamore. Aaron Belkin, your response? Well, I, I would say that things are even worse than, than Matilda suggested, because it's not just a question of the focus on Don't Ask, Don't Tell diverting attention. And, and I say this as someone who has been fighting Don't Ask, Don't Tell for years and who believes passionately that Don't Ask, Don't Tell needed to end, and that's been my uh, professional struggle for all these years. But at the same time, it's important to be honest and to note that not only did we divert attention away from more pressing problems, but our very rhetoric as a, as a gay and as a queer community in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell struggle reinforced militarism. What does that mean? It means that every time we talked about the importance of promoting unit cohesion and the loyal gay and lesbian service member, we reinforced the notion of the military as a noble institution, and uh, that has a militarizing impact. Your book that was just published is called How We Won Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So what are these progressive lessons, Aaron? As progressives, we've been uh, advised to, uh, particularly by George Lakoff, to worry about framing and slick packaging and marketing. And, and, and my lesson from the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal campaign is that, as progressives, maybe in, in some important cases, our, our issue is not so much that we don't know how to frame, but that we sometimes run away from our own ideas. Think for a moment about national security policy and the ways in which excessive military strength is dangerous and excessive military strength undermines our economy—sorry, uh, uh, our security will end our economy as well. So 
is the best strategy as a, as a progressive to try to pretend that we believe in military strength, or is the best strategy to use research and data to actually show that excessive military strength undermines our security, and to say that again and again and again, to give our leaders some cover to say that, too. In the Don't Ask, Don't Tell debate, we didn't go about trying to invent some new frame or some slick packaging. We just looked at the conservatives, frankly, at the conservatives' lies, um, the idea that gay troops hurt the military, and we used research and data again and again and again to show that's not true. You have spent a long time looking at Don't Ask, Don't Tell. How was it repealed exactly? How would you say the organizing took place? There were at least five strategies that, uh, that gay rights groups were pursuing. Um, I don't think any single strategy was decisive, but it was a combination of incredible uh, protest and direct action by people like Dan Choi, grassroots organizing out in uh, moderate swing states, uh, litigation, uh, insider uh, lobbying here in Washington, and then a public education component that we had to convince the American people and the military uh, that repeal would not not harm the armed forces. That, that's that kind of double-edged argument that reinforced militarism, but also uh, led to the dismantling of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And what ultimately, Aaron Belkin, do you think was the tipping point? It's hard to point to any one moment, but there were a few critical steps along the way. Um, breaking the news that Arabic linguists were fired for being gay, I think, helped illustrate to the public the stakes of discrimination. Uh, when former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Shalakashvili, published an op-ed in The New York Times saying that as the top officer in the military, he was wrong about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, that was profound. And then when Admiral Mike Mullen uh, said uh, last year that Don't Ask, Don't Tell undermines our values, I think that was the last, uh, the last nail in the coffin. If Republicans were to win in 2012 the presidency, could Don't Ask, Don't Tell be reinstituted? I think that would be the least of our problems, but um, in theory, uh, they could, although in practice, it would be very difficult, even for the most extreme Republican like Rick Perry, uh, to do so. Um, the issue is uh, political, because about three-quarters of the country, uh, including a majority of Republicans, favor repeal. Uh, and it's also operational, because how are you going to force people to, uh, to go back in the closet? You know, George Bush tried to get rid of a Clinton-era executive order mandating non-discrimination in the civilian sector of the government, and he couldn't get away f uh, with it because uh, it would have looked too mean-spirited. So, so the Republicans can try, and in theory they could succeed, but, but I think we're safe. Professor Aaron Belkin of San Francisco State University is director of the Palm Center and author of How We Won, Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He was interviewed by Amy Goodman. Two wild-hearted lovers who are sick of holding hands in the dark. Oh, wild-hearted lovers who are sick of holding hands in the dark. That report by This Way Out's Lucia Chappelle. It took another decade after Don't Ask, Don't Tell ended in 2011 for transgender service members to win their full rights in the U.S. military. President Joe Biden used an executive order to revoke his predecessor's ban on transgender service, and the new trans-inclusive policy took full effect on April 30th of this year. 
Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Sarah Montague and Michael LeBeau, produced by Brian DeShazer and Lucia Chappell. Thanks also to Wendy Natividad and J.D. Doyle. Rachel Platten, Sam Cook, and Tom Goss and Matt Albert performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This way out thanks to Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavana Foundation, a bequest for Christopher David Trentum, and donors Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email tworadio at aol.com, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappell and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Greg Gordon. Thanks for listening. Online at thiswayout.org and on KUR, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, CKUW, Winnipeg, Manitoba, WBDY, Binghamton, New York, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned.